Good morning, Grace Chapel. It's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, thank God spring is tomorrow, right? Because uh, yesterday sure felt like January. Uh, it looks like it's going to be better uh, coming up this week. I'd like to open in a word of prayer um, before we dive into uh, this rich message in Philippians 2. All of Philippians is great. All of the Bible is awesome, right? But this, well, you'll see with Paul, it, he really is a very deep, uh, the wisdom, um, his understanding obviously revealed through Jesus Christ in him. Um, but it's, I'm excited uh, for this message. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in thankfulness and praise for who you are in our lives. We thank you so much for your unabounding love for us, a love so great we cannot even comprehend. I pray that your message, your word, what you want us to learn from your word today is totally from you, that you show us your love, your service, our service, our obedience, the Christ-likeness that we are to emulate when we look at Jesus. I pray this comes through in Jesus' name, amen. In 1971, my father was called to his first church out of seminary in Granville, Ohio. And I wasn't around yet. That was a couple years later. So Granville, Ohio is a uh, beautiful New England-style town centered about 30 miles northeast of Columbus. The church that he was called to was called Pilgrim Lutheran Church. It was on the corner of Broadway and Cherry. So if you were to leave, uh, the, to give you an example, if you were to leave Cherry, um, take a right, you'd travel about 30 miles southwest, you'd be in downtown Columbus. So we were, that's, we were just on the outskirts of Columbus. So the house um, that we first lived in, my parents, and I was born at, lived at, uh, was a parsonage, which you don't see much today. But it was a, a huge, big old, over 100-year-old house, really neat and cool, but also very dangerous. Um, when there's lead paint on the walls. Um, I remember in the winter time, we'd have icicles from the roof probably this, this uh, long because of all the heat probably escaping the house. The, the basement wasn't really as a basement, it was a cellar, it was a dirt cellar. And I do have fond memories of that time. Across the street from us directly was Denison University. A very prestigious, they called it the Harvard of the Midwest. And Matt Fallot might be the only one that cares about this little known fact, but the storied Ohio State football coach Woody Hayes first began his career coaching at Denison University. So we lived in that parsonage for a little while, and then we finally moved out to the country, and when I mean the country, it was our our next-door neighbor was a probably 40, 50-acre uh, cornfield. 
And I remember at times the farmer's cows would break out of the pen and leave us presents in our front yard. And my mom would call the farmer and say, come get your cows. So we would travel back and forth between the church and our house, which is probably six miles out of the village of Granville. And I remember there was a, an old hobo. For those that don't know what a hobo is, it's someone who just travels the trains or however they can get around. They're, they're homeless. They don't really have anything but what they can carry. And I remember one time this hobo stopped at our church and we happened to be there. His name was John. He was old, wore torn, tattered clothes, smelled horrible. And my, my mom and my dad, when John would arrive, would offer him food or clothing. And I remember one time, I, I don't know how I remember this, but I just do. We took John to our house. He was in the front seat, I was in the back seat. And, and uh, my, my parents took him to our house. And we, they invited him in to take a shower, which he denied. He, de- he declined. He didn't want to. And uh, they, I think they gave him a coat. It was getting cold out. He took the coat. I remember he, he just wanted, like, canned goods, like can of cream of mushroom soup so he could just eat it out of the can or heat it in a pot. And when studying for this message, that vivid memory came to mind. And, and that's why when Jason read the, the opening verses, when Jesus said, the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What a great example of that in which my parents were emulating Christ's likeness to this old hobo who, and all were, I, I'm thinking, gosh, nowadays, I don't know if I would be able to do that, right? That's, that's a big thing to have some guy you don't know traveling the train tracks and you're, he's in your car with your young child. I may have been four or five at the time. So this leads us into Philippians 2. So, Philippians 2, I, I have the whole chapter, so I'm thinking, Lord, how am I going to do this? 30 verses. Well the, well, the Lord is faithful, and he showed me. Praise God. So, to start Philippians, I'm going to go to the end. And I'm going to start with verse 18, and we should have some of these verses for you, hopefully most of them. Um, and why I'm doing this is I'm going to give some, some context of what we're going to be talking about in the beginning of Philippians 2. So Paul here is talking about Timothy and Ephroditus um, in service, rejoicing, having joy, um, um, centering their lives in the mindset of Christ, despite some pretty dire circumstances, even close to death. But there's this sense of joy So, 18, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered of news of you. For I have no one like him 
Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Remember, Paul was in, in, in jail. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Ephroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, in honor and honor such men or others like him. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So this kind of gives us a, a, a context of what now we're going to talk about and why Paul can write like this, being in, in, in jail. So before I start with verse uh, 1, I just kind of want to, just in the very end of Philippians 27 through 30, just kind of give you how that ended real quickly, and then we'll get into 2. So, how Philippians 1 ends is where Paul is talking about a life worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit, one mind as we strive to stand firm and not frightened by our opponents. Because why? We are doing this for the cause of Jesus and our belief and our salvation in him. But because of that, we too will also suffer. Paul is very clear about that. So now let's dig into Philippians 2. Verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. So there's an attitude or a set of thinking that leads to this fearless unity, which completes the joy that Paul is referring to here. It's funny how he mentions mind twice. I'll, I'll dig into that. So let's look at this word comfort, what Paul's talking about. Because when we think of this world and its circumstances, and all of its circumstances, the word that does not come to my mind is comfort. It just isn't when you look at this world. But let's see what God has to say about comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 says, God is saying about God, who comforts us in our, all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted, comforted by God. So this comfort from love that Paul is talking about is from being loved by God, which then produces love in us. 
the reason we can live, love others is because God loves us. So we can see why Paul talks about this comfort from love and how it's linked to joy. Paul is filled with joy when we are in the same love and the same mind and being in full accord of one mind. What's interesting is when you look up the word accord in a Greek, it is symphonia. So think of a grand symphony, many parts, but they come together as one to make beautiful music. In Nehemiah 8.10, it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. And there's a song that's written about that, right? The Bible uh, says that God gives us joy and peace. It tells us that the only real joy comes from God, and it is forever. So our joy can only be completed by and through Jesus Christ. Now, talking about having one mind that Paul talked about here. In the book of James, James warns us about being double-minded. So if you think of having one mind, the opposite of that is having two minds. The Greek is called dipsohas, which means a person with two minds or souls, or also known as a divided interest. So James warns us about being double-minded when he was talking about why one would not receive anything from the Lord. He said because in 1.8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I think we have this one, James 4.8. When James was talking about um, submitting ourselves to God and to resist the devil and he will flee, says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a great formula. Cleanse your hands. That, that represents the, the, um, when the, the priests would go into the temple, they had to wash their hands, they had to clean their hand, cleanse their hands. You sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So a double-minded person is restless, confused. Their thoughts, actions, and behavior and such a person is always in conflict with themselves. There's this constant inner, inner struggle that you, we can see externally. One torn by such inner conflict can never lean on the, the conf, with confidence in God and his gracious promises. Correspondingly, the term unstable is analogous to someone who is drunk, unsteady, unable to walk a straight line. There is no defined direction. As a result, they don't get anywhere. And it says, that's why the Bible says they're unstable in all they do. Those who are double-minded do not have the faith spoken about in Hebrews. Hebrews 1 and 3 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We cannot be both certain and doubting, as is the double-minded person is. One part of their mind is sure of something, while the other part doubts. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
God and the things of this world are diametrically opposed to each other. It is impossible to love either one completely without hating the other. Those who try to love both will become unstable in all their ways. So we really see why Paul is talking about the importance of having one mind and one accord in one mind. Verse 3 of Philippians, 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Matthew 23, 11, and 12 says that the greatest among you, this is Jesus talking, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus was a servant, wasn't he? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we're going to see this ultimate exaltation coming up in verse 9 in Philippians here. So let's look at 6 and 7. Who though he, talking about Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, isn't it? We know that Jesus was God and he counted himself equal with God. Because we know that in, in, in John 5, 18, the Pharisees were seeking to kill Jesus because Jesus said that God was his father and he counted himself equal. And the, the Pharisees just, they wanted to kill him right there. They, they would have if they could have. Um, but in verse 7, it says, but, talking about Jesus, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So there's this concept of, of Christ emptying himself, pouring out himself. But we really know that this process, it did not start on the cross. It's this, this process of reconciliation, right? There needed to be reconciliation. Started when Jesus was an embryo in Mary's womb. This had to occur to complete this process, to restore us back into God's family. The first Adam got us kicked out of the garden with the sin. As Paul says, the final Adam or last Adam, Jesus, he is going to restore us back into the garden, back to God's family. That's why there needs to be this reconciliation. And Jesus is that bridge. He is that answer for that restoration. It's interesting when it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking. It's kind of, it doesn't make sense. You empty by taking. But this is because this was an addition to who he already was. Jesus did not lose his divinity when he was born as a human. He was both. He took the form of a human and a servant to the point of death. He, he did this for our good in salvation. 
Salvation can also be known as to be healed, to be delivered, to be redeemed. We have no better example than Jesus himself and what it means to be a servant. The type of servant that Paul is emphasizing here in verses 3 and 4, which is being selfless, humble, and concerned with others. We are to strive with Christ's likeness, this Christ mindset that Paul obviously is doing himself. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. I'm sorry, through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, it's a big word there, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why do you think it says even death on a cross? Like death isn't bad enough. Well, because death on a cross was a very painful, humiliating thing. That's why Paul wrote that. Therefore, God has highly, this is awesome, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There is no name higher than Jesus. That's what it says right here. So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's a lot going on there. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are his creation. All of this is his creation, even what we can't see. So that's why it says that everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to Jesus, whether they believe in him or not. That day will be coming. And what a glorious day that will be for us who believe in him. Even when we think about how Jesus entered Jerusalem, which we're going to be recognizing coming up in, 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 in April next month um, and celebrating, Jesus deliberately chose to ride a donkey. What does that represent? That represents meekness, humility, and peace. Now, his second return was going to be on a white horse. So, that's even better. Remember, we just said in Matthew 23, he, whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Jesus humbled himself to even enter Jerusalem on a donkey. So that... Every knee shall bow in heaven, and his name is above every name. The the exact day that Paul is talking about when that happens is going to be coming up in verse 16 that we're going to talk about. But, But Paul says that on that day, that he, so he can be proud, that Paul says, so I can be proud, proud of the work I did for Christ and that I did not run in, 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 in vain or labor, work in vain. Next uh, two verses, 12 and 13. This might be in the Bible one of the greatest two verses about living the Christian life. It can be very confusing. We're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into this. Because it, 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 on its surface, it's like, okay, what does that mean? Um, so let's start with this. Therefore, my beloved. So therefore, meaning linking back to all the other stuff we were talking about. 
it's leading up to this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, now here we go, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a lot wrapped up in this. So, we're going to parse this probably the most today. To read the verse 12 as salvation that we have already have by believing in Jesus and, 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 and the workout is, is kind of a fleshing it out, if you will, is, is not bad theology. But I want to explore if Paul really meant something deeper here. And I, I really think he did. So work out means to produce. When we work, we produce something. We bring it about. So I don't believe Paul really is referring to something that has already happened. Because Paul talks about salvation in three different ways. Past, present, and future. Let's look at the past. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And this is where, where lies our security of our salvation. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these good works that's talking about is not, these, these good works is a result of being saved. It's not to be saved, right? Let's look at the present salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the present. And now let's look at future salvation. Romans 13, 11. This you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, death, in the grave. For salvation, at this time, salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. That's talking about the future, on Jesus' return. And we wake from our sleep, and our soul is united with our body. That's what he's talking about here. So to kind of tie this together, I'm going to briefly go into Philippians 3, not to steal next week's message, but I think there's a, there's a tie here we need to look at. In, in, in Philippians 3, 8 through 12, Paul talks about attaining this future resurrection by counting um, everything a loss, everything that he's done is, 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 is as rubbish in suffering with Christ. He talks about this salvation or resurrection 
but yet not being perfected. But he says, you know what? I press on anyway. I make it my own because Jesus made me his own that I can now do this to make it my own because Jesus, he owns me. Paul is referring to this future salvation, this future resurrection as, in, as the day of the Lord when the graves are opened. I believe this is what Paul is referring to his work out here in 2.12. To work out means to bring about, to pursue, to produce, because Christ Jesus has made me his own, he says. When Jesus died for me and for you, for all that believe and accept him, the Holy Spirit got a hold of us. He made us his own. We are in Christ Jesus, not having a righteousness of our own, but of his righteousness. So Paul is talking about a salvation that yet is in the future here. He is pressing on or working out, or he's producing through obedience, which is very important, in the pursuit of a future salvation, of the security that Christ has made him his own. Philippians 1.6, going back from uh, the last couple weeks ago, ties into this when he said, I am sure of this day, the day we're talking about, when, when the, the graves are opened, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. So how do we work it out? What's that really look like that Paul is referring to here? We've established it's not about working for our salvation. That's already secure. But looking to the future. I believe that in Ephesians 4.32 says this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ, as God in Jesus, forgave you. This is how God wants us to live our lives. Be kind to one another is a way of producing or bringing about, working it out, working out our salvation. As it says in verse 12, we just talked about, being kind to one another is part of obedience. This does not mean that we are creating this a relationship with God because that has already happened when we accepted Jesus Christ. It says that as God in Christ, there's a union here. God in Christ. This union cannot be broken. Therefore, we need to be in the business of confirming this union and confirming forgiveness. Now I want to just touch on the fear and trembling part. Because I think some people have confused over, and I've, I've heard some people erroneously say that, what does this mean? Can we lose our salvation? Do we cower in fear and that we are not saved through the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, that certainly does not sound like Paul at all. Do we not have that blessed assurance of our, from our Savior? Are we to fear if we don't work hard enough, we can lose our salvation? Most certainly not. Fear, however, is important. And we most certainly would believe that Paul feared God. 
In Matthew 10.28, Jesus said that we should not fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So there is a fear that we have to um, be aware of. But that fear is more now that we have Jesus as a respect, a reverence, an awness of, of our Heavenly Father. The Greek word for fear can equally mean reverence or respect. In fact, Paul uses this phrase when referring to Titus as being, encour- as being encouraged by the Corinthians' reception of him with great humility and respect as a great minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have 2 Corinthians 7.15 when Paul writes, and his affection for you, talking about Titus, is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Here we go again, fear and trembling. Paul himself, when he came to the Corinthian church in weakness and in fear, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So we're seeing here that Paul was mindful of the great and awesome nature of the work that he was engaged in. That's what this is referring to. So this fear and trembling is to have an awe, a respect, a reverence for our King, Jesus Christ and his majesty, his holiness, his awesomeness. And this is where it's tied to obedience. 14, 15 of Philippians 2. Do all things, oh boy, this, is one, this one's going to be hard for, for a lot of us. Do all things without grumbling or dispute. Boy, are we good at that. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the mindset of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of lights in the world. So we know that the, the, the generations are crooked and twisted, but we are to be different. We are to be lights, as, as Paul is saying here. Jesus confirmed this in Matthew 5, 14 and through 16, when he said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Here we go with works again. And we are to give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Verse 16 through 17. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, which we've talked about, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out himself, poured out as a a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, knowing that he is still rejoicing. See, Paul understood, he he got it, that Jesus poured out his life as a sacrifice for our salvation, and he himself understood this and was willing to do the same. 
I'm nearly finished here, and I just kind of want to finish up with a couple more verses. I'm going to go to Corinthians 2, 3, 16 and 18. Paul said, but when one turns to the Lord, there's a veil that's removed. Boy, did Paul get that. When, when he had the scales on his eyes and, and then when they were removed, right? Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In Philippians 1, verse 23, when Paul says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul also says. He got it. He understood. See, Paul didn't look at the things of this world. That meant nothing to him. Only one thing did, Jesus Christ, in the spreading of the gospel. He did not care about religion. He did not care about politics. He did not care about any of those things that are distracting. His joy and his security, which we should learn and seek to attain, came from the one and only true source, which is Jesus Christ. So, how can we apply this? Working out our salvation with this fear and trembling. So if we, if we look at maybe a three or four sentences, this is kind of what it would look like. It is, the pursuit, it is in the pursuit of our future salvation on that day of Christ in which God will bring to completion. It is our reliance and reverence in Jesus Christ with the security that he has made us his own, so that we are pressing on, we produce for him with kindness, with love, and forgiveness through obedience, so that we may be proud for that work for Christ had a purpose. We worked for Christ, and our work had a purpose for his kingdom. That's what Paul is, is all about here. So it, it is by all this that we have this unspeakable joy that Paul is talking about. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the writing of, of, of Paul and Philippians of how we are to live our lives we are to focus on you and not of this world. We are to be servants of Jesus Christ, meaning that we serve others. We love others. We're kind-hearted to others. We thank you for your love to us, your forgiveness for our sins. May we always look to your face and not at this world. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. And I just want to leave with this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine to you, to you upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <laughs>